Last week we read uh, during the first reading Acts chapter 1. That was Christ's ascension to heaven. And we celebrated when Christ ascended 40 days after his resurrection. It was an Acts session. He, he, he was raised to the highest throne in heaven and on earth. He was enthroned as the Lord. And, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And from heaven's throne, Jesus sends to his people, to his church, hope and richness and power to this very day. This morning we read from Acts chapter 2. That was Jesus um, doing exactly as he had promised his disciples, to send power, to send the Holy Spirit, to indwell and to empower the church. Uh, and that was the day of Pentecost. And now we're going to read a few verses that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Uh, this is in, in modern-day Turkey, uh, a little bit separate from Jerusalem where the day of Pentecost took place. And, and in this, Paul will give us a, a little bit more about the meaning of the day of Pentecost. So if you turn your direction to the, to the back middle portion, I'll read our scripture together. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for speaking to us, as, as, as Leah reminded us that this isn't a dead word, but a living and active word. We thank you for your voice. Uh, you speak to us through this by your spirit. Would you help us uh, to now be, be opened up, to have our eyes and our hearts um, receive uh, this word from the spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our, our text this morning, verses 11 through 14, it's a little bit of rude of me, but I, I've chopped Paul mid-sentence. Because if you look at the original Greek, in, this is what uh, the, the letter to the Ephesian church was written in, if you go starting in verse 3 all the way through vor verse 14, it's just one long continuous sentence. There's no, there's no sentence, there's, there's no paragraphs, there's no periods, there's no exclamation marks. Um, there are no periods. It's just Paul going off on one long stream of consciousness sentence. A similar thing happened to us last week when we were looking at a, a different section of Ephesians. Paul here, he has too much to say to the church. Like, like he has too much to celebrate too much to remind the Ephesians that the standard rules of grammar do not apply to him. Like, no period can contain me, is what he's saying. And so starting in verse 3 and all the way through verse 14, Paul is just going on and on um, about, uh, about God and what he has done for his people. And in particular, he is praising the work of, of the triune God in his work of rescuing sinners and bringing them into his family. The triune God, that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and how uh, each person in the Trinity, works in distinct but united ways uh, to bring salvation to people. I don't know if you noticed in that song we sang, Grace Alone. If, if you look at it later on, it's structured actually, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, the work of the Father in salvation, and then singing a chorus about it. The work of the, the Son in the work of salvation, and then a chorus about it. The work of the Spirit, and then a, it's, it's, it's well structured, so you, know, you can look at that later. Um, if you look even just in our mid-sentence cutoff of Paul, verses 11 through 14, um, in verse 11, he speaks of the Ephesians Christians being predestined and chosen for salvation, and that is the work of God the Father. If you look at verses 12 through 13, Paul tells them that their salvation has been accomplished by God the Son. The gospel message, Christ dying for our sins and for our salvation, 
That's the gospel of their salvation. In verses 13 through 14, we learn about the work of the Spirit in sealing and guaranteeing the salvation. So again, Christian salvation is Trinitarian. It's from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. Again, our salvation is from the Father, it is through the Son, and it is in the Holy Spirit. That might be kind of hard to conceptualize, so there's a couple ways that you could do this. One of them is you could think in terms of timeline. If you think of timeline, how does this work? If you're looking at a timeline, you say that the Father chose us to be his people before, before the world began. The Son worked our rescue in and around Jerusalem in the first century. And the Spirit, from the day of Pentecost on to today, applies salvation and enlivens us as his rescued people. Another way of thinking of this Trinitarian work in salvation is to picture a road trip. You're on a road trip. God the Father is the destination. That's, that's where you are meant to go. Uh, when you arrive there, there is eternal life. There is joy and peace with Him. But God the Son is the only road to get to the Father. And God the Holy Spirit has to drive you there. He is the car that you have to jump into. And so this is, this is the big idea for uh, the sermon this morning. God gives you everything you need. God gives you everything you need. In Christ, God gives you everything you need. Father, Son, and Spirit is at work to give you everything you need, past, present, and future, for life, for godliness, for, for everything. Life is hard. If you've been living long enough, you know that life can be hard. Cynics would say the only certainties in life are death and taxes. You read the New Testament, and unfortunately, there are some other things that, that, that the writers of the New Testament will give to you. If you're a follower of Christ, uh, you are promised not only death and taxes, but suffering if you want to follow Christ. If, if you want to follow Christ in this world, death, taxes, suffering, and also temptations. Uh, your own flesh, the world around you. There are also demonic spiritual forces at work to tempt you and to destroy you. Your own flesh wants to do battle against you. It's not just hard to live the life of faith. Without the help of God the Spirit, it's impossible. God's power given to Christians in the Spirit, uh, sometimes we think of it as like this nice optional element if you want to become a super-Christian. The really serious Christians, they're filled with the Spirit. But yeah, it's not really for me. That's a little too extreme. But what we find in the pages of the New Testament is that Spirit living is just basic Christian living. You cannot live in the faith without the work of the Spirit. Presbyterians, this is kind of our, our family background, Reformed Presbyterians, we're sometimes accused of, of ignoring the person and the work of the Spirit. You know, that's for people who like to sing louder and you know, raise their hands a little bit more. But let's have none of this at this church, okay? We need the Spirit's work. We need it desperately. We need Him... Um, to just, to just live this life of faith. And so we, we want to be expressive. We want to say we need the Spirit. Um, the Spirit's power in the life of Christian is just as necessary as light and water are for plants. Plants don't have life in themselves. They can't sustain themselves. They actually need external care, external nourishment. They need to be sustained by external forces just to live on their own. And so we need the Spirit's nourishment. We need the Spirit's sustaining power to keep our faith alive and vibrant. So Paul writes to the Ephesians church to remind them God gives you everything you need. God gives you everything you need. Everything you need to follow God, to believe in him, to continue on in the life of faith, to do what he commands. God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gives to you. And there are three, three areas in particular we'll look at uh, in, in, in this passage. This is the first one. God gives you everything you need to be united with other Christians. God gives you everything you need to be united with other Christians. 
This is kind of more of like a subtle point in Paul's uh, writing, but we'll, we'll try to see it. If you notice in verse 11, Paul writes about a we. He talks about, in Christ, we have obtained. Uh, verse 12, if you look at it, he says he's referring to a group. So that we, who were the first to hope, Paul is writing about him and his people. And then he moves on. If you look at, uh, if you look at the next verses, um, in verse 13 and 14, he writes about a you. So he's writing about a we, then he moves to a you. He says, you also, when you heard the word of truth. He's, he's referring here to the Ephesian readers, to, this was the Texas translation, it would be to y'all, y'all over there. He's writing to them. So Paul and his group are the we. They're the first followers of Christ. This is most likely referring to primarily Jewish Christians. And then the Ephesian church, the y'all, they are the later adopters, uh, the, the Gentile, the non-Jewish Christians. Now the Ephesian church, they may be attempted may be tempted to look at Paul and his crew with some envy. These are, these are Jewish believers. They're the, they're the first people that God has encountered uh, with the Spirit in, in Christ. Uh, historically, we'd say that the Jewish people were God's chosen people. In the distant past, God himself chose graciously Abraham's family to be his special people. And then that family grew. They grew to the 12 tribes of Israel and then into the, the nation of Israel. And throughout time, God put his special care on this people, his covenant people. He cared for them. He, he gave them his law. He bound himself to them in particular. He rescued them when they were slaves in Egypt. He, he gave them his words. He gave them the sacrificial system. He gave them the temple so that God could live among them. They could be made clean and, and he could be their God and they could be his people. In more recent history, it was to Israel that God sent his son, Jesus. When God took on human flesh, when he became a man, he became a Jewish man. He was born to a Jewish mom. He was born in a Jewish town. Jesus' teaching and healing ministry was almost exclusively done among Jewish people. When God the Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost, it fell on a gathering of Jewish Christians, gathering and praying in the very Jewish city of Jerusalem. And so, what connection could the Ephesian Gentile Christians claim to God's work in the world. They must have been looking at Paul and that we group and thinking, we're kind of on the outside. And they might have read in the Gospel of Luke or something like that of Jesus' ministry among the Jews about his miraculous, spirit-filled works, the work of Pentecost, and thought, must be nice for them. Like, too bad we missed out. Too bad we were born in the wrong time to the wrong family. And maybe you've wondered something similar about your particular connection to events that you read about in the Bible. You read about God's particular care and protection for his people. You see in the book of Acts how God, by the Spirit, empowered the church at, at Pentecost. And you think, good for them. But what about me? What does that have to do with me? Well, this is how Paul connects we and you. Look at verse 13. He says, in him you also, you also, in the same way that we, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, you too, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the same God, the exact same God who was at work in choosing Israel as his own possession, the same God who moved heaven and earth to rescue Israel from slavery, the same God who sent Jesus to rescue a people and to fill them with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is the same God who by his Spirit lives in you today. If you are in Christ, it is the same Spirit who indwells you, the exact same Spirit. How can you be united with other Christians, with Christians you've read about in the past? What do Christians then and now, the we and you have in common? We have the same spirit. 
the exact same spirit. I don't know if you've noticed, every week when we confess the Apostles' Creed before communion, we, we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then immediately we confess, we also believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the universal, the, the varied church. We believe in the communion of the saints. And what we're confessing in the creed is that by faith, we who are in Christ, though very different from each other in many ways, whether historically or ethnically or socially, we are different from one another in age or in temperament, in taste. We are separated by time and space. We are united by the same spirit into one church, having communion with one another. There is no longer an us and them, a we and you. There is unity by the spirit, the God who is at work in his people in the pages of the Bible, who empowers and helps to help people persevere in suffering. That is the same spirit that is in you. So first, God gives you everything you need to be united with other Christians. Second, God gives you everything you need to wait in hope. To wait in hope. Verse 11, if you look at it. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We've come across this concept actually a bunch of times, it feels like, in the last couple of weeks. Christ making promises to his people of hope and richness of satisfaction, of, of laughter, of peace, the promise of a, of a rich inheritance. But like any other inheritance, there's sometimes a very long wait before you get it. And so Jesus expects his people to wait and to wait in hope. But waiting is hard. If, you've had, if, you, if you can remember being a kid waiting for Christmas morning to come, it's Christmas Eve, it'll never come. It, it is years away. And, and, and you have this aching and this longing. Waiting is extremely hard, and, and it is extremely hard in particular when you are suffering now, when there's something that you need, but it's promised to you in the future. Uh, somebody who is very poor and they have an inheritance, they want the inheritance right now. So sometimes we're tempted to say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for promising me uh, richness then, but I'm suffering now. I'm in need now. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for promising me comfort. To, to wipe away all of my tears then, but I'm weeping and I'm hurting now. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for promising me satisfaction then, but I'm so lonely. I'm so discontent now. And you wonder, will my faith be able to make it? Will I be able to bear my suffering until that distant day comes? Can I actually have a vibrant faith? Can I have joy and peace while I wait in hope? Paul says to the Ephesians, look at verse 13. In verse 13 he says, When you believed in Christ, when you repented of your sins, when you trusted in him alone, you were sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Jesus never asks you just to grin and bear it while you wait. He doesn't ask you, just dig down deeper, you know, within yourself. Toughen up, lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. He doesn't leave you on your own. Just, just kind of figure things out while you're waiting. You cannot wait in hope on your own. You need help. You need power to endure. And thankfully, God gives you everything you need to wait in hope. He gives you his spirit. He seals you with his spirit. In John 6, Jesus says the same. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. To try to make it on your own, you will lose. We wait in hope by the Spirit's power, and we wait in hope by His power alone. To be sealed with the Spirit, you see that language in verse 13, it's to have God's own mark on you. 
his own promise on you. Uh, if you've ever seen a you know, movie or something where a medieval king late at night, he's writing a letter and he takes typically a red candle and he puts it on the back of the, and he's got a ring and he stamps it into it to, to put his seal on the envelope to, to guarantee it's from him. He does this so that whoever receives this message from him will truly know it's a message from the king's hand, that its contents are true and trustworthy, that they're from the king's own mouth and they're guaranteed. God sent his spirit at Pentecost uh, to seal you with the words of Christ. What he says to you about your future hope, the hope, the richness, the life, it's true. It's from God's own hand. And God will give you everything you need to wait and hope. He has sealed this by his spirit. Here's an application for you to consider. You can and you ought to ask the spirit-filled church to help you wait in hope. In fact, I think this is essential to your faith, to ask the spirit-filled church to help you as you wait in hope. I don't know if you're the kind of person that naturally hates asking for help. Uh, You're the kind of person that hates to admit any kind of weakness when your faith isn't strong. You don't want to inconvenience anyone. I don't want anyone, I don't want to bug anyone with saying I need a prayer at 2 a.m. or, you know, or a more convenient time. Uh, Maybe you're somebody who likes to give the appearance of strength. I want to be a role model. I don't want to be somebody who looks wishy-washy. Or maybe you're just, you're you're proud. You're kind of concerned. I want people to, to, uh, to see me in the right kind of light. But God has given you everything you need. And one of the things that he gives to his people is the spirit-filled church. Other brothers and sisters in Christ were filled with that same spirit. Paul writes uh, to the Galatian church, he says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. The people of God have been filled with the spirit of God, and they are given to each other by God to help each other wait in hope. That's that's part of the reason why we've been given to each other. Uh, uh, Other Christians are part of that everything you need God gives peace. Included in that, it's not just, not just you and Jesus. It, it is the church. So if you're weeping right now while you're waiting, weep and wait with the church around you. Do that together. Encourage each other. Help each other. If you're hungry and you're waiting, you're, you're longing for satisfaction, wait alongside other Christians who can, who can pray with you, who can urge you on, who can remind you of Christ's words who can bear your burdens with you until the day where where these needs are totally satisfied in Christ. In other words, the Christian life is not a solo sport. It's not for lone rangers. It's not for people who think they can do it on their own. It's a life lived in the Spirit and among those who are filled with the Spirit. We need each other. So first, God gives you everything you need to dwell in unity with other Christians. Second, God gives you everything you need to wait in hope. And finally, we'll end with this. God gives you everything you need to exist for his praise. God gives you everything you need to exist for his praise. Existing for praise, for God's praise, is the reason for your being. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you ever think that. If you ever ask the big existential question of who am I and why am I here? I hate to be the first person to to invite you to ask that question, but, but that's a question you really ought to ask. Who am I and why am I here? What am I here for? God has an answer for you. Only your creator can tell you who you are and why you're here. And it's this, you exist for praise. Only, only your creator can tell you uh, what, what your purpose is. And, and is this, when the, during the Reformation, when they asked this question, they looked in the scriptures, what is the chief end of man? Biblically, they said it's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is, every, every person's 
purpose for existence, everything in life, all that you are, all that you ought to do, ought to be for the praise and glory of God. Uh, all of creation, every man, woman, and child, uh, the constellations in the universe um, is made to, to reflect God, to give him glory and to praise him. And if you're, if you're not a Christian, this might seem like a bit of a bizarre concept. It might, be, might seem odd, a little, little, little foreign, that you were created for this purpose, uh, to exist for praise. And listen, this isn't like an invitation to say, okay, um, you are all invited now to, be, to become a monk or a nun, and, and that's how you can glorify God and, and give him praise. You, you can do this in all kinds of ways, as, as, a, as a teacher, as a doctor, as a waitress, as a student. We prayed for those in the media. You can glorify God and exist for his praise in whatever vocation God brings you to. Paul writes this to another church, to the Corinthian church. He says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There is a way to glorify God in whatever we do. That means whether you're working or you're resting, um, in everything, you should give thanks to God for his goodness. In everything, you should acknowledge God uh, as king. In everything, um, you ought to seek to advance his kingdom and his purposes, not your own, uh, among the people, among the city that he's placed you in. In Psalm 100, we sing about this reality. Say, know that God, he is God. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Uh, this is who we are. This is what we're made for. And you, you probably noticed that as we, as we read through our short passage in verses 12 and 14. This is how Paul caps off these ideas. What God is doing in your life, the reason for your existence is meant to the praise of God's glory. I don't know if you see that at the end of 12 and 14. This is a summary of Paul's thoughts. So the question is, what was God doing in the life of the Ephesians? What was God up to that was, that was meant to praise God's glory? What activity was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit up to in the Ephesian church that was intended, again, to glorify God? He was saving them. He was rescuing and restoring them. He was empowering the Ephesians. And he, and he was doing that with an express purpose so that they might live uh, for his praise. Why are we rescued? Why is God restoring us? There's an answer for that. So that God would be praised. There's a fourth century writer named uh, Ambrosiaster, and, and he, he said it this way Just as it is the glory of a doctor if he cures many, so it is to the praise of God's glory when many are one for the faith. Sometimes we, can, we, we, we only think, uh, you know, when I come to church, I can praise God when I'm feeling great, when things are going wonderful. Or, or do you know how I can really glorify God? How, how the world will, you know, maybe see my life and, and they'll be able to say, man, God is great. Is, it's when I'm winning, when, when I, I have a ton to give thanks for. Uh, God is praised when people look at my life and they think that could probably go in a magazine or a really great Instagram. Uh, that's what it means uh, for us to give thanks. And, and if that's your life, congratulations. I don't know how you got there. But, but you should be able to give thanks to God during those times. But listen, when God comes to you, as a broken, sick, needy person, and you approach God asking for his help and healing, this is what gives God the most glory. That is existing for God's praise. Jesus has glorified us, glorified in us, as the great physician when he heals all of our sins and evils on the cross. Jesus is glorified in us when we bring to him our dirty feet and he washes us clean. God is praised when we bring 
when we bring ourselves dead and dry branches, and by faith he, he attaches us to the fruitful vine of Jesus, and we finally get to bear good fruit. God gives you everything you need to exist for his praise because he comes to us as the one who takes all of our brokenness, all of our despair, all of our sin and sadness, and through his love and his mercy, he alone brings us hope and healing through his son Jesus. Now may you celebrate the day of Pentecost and live a life in dependence on the Spirit. May you praise God for your salvation, which is from the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. May you know the unity you have with those who have come before you, who have walked the same steps you have, that you share the exact same Spirit and have been saved by the exact same Jesus. May you wait in hope, being sealed and empowered by the Spirit who has given who has been given to you as God's own guarantee. And may you exist for praise, living a life of humble dependence on God who gives you everything you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your church. Too many blessings to give thanks for, Lord. We, we ask now that you would fill us with your spirit. We thank you for the seal, and now we ask that we would walk in this life. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.